holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I remember back in my own life some iconic moments, life-transforming moments. I remember as a young convert sitting in the First Baptist Church of Pontiac, Michigan, listening to my dear pap Pastor Bob Shelton preach the Word of God. He had a way of always touching my heart. He would open the Word of God and just simply talk about the truth in the Scripture, but always brought it back to Jesus. And I remember he preached on Matthew 17 one time. This is where the disciples are on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember Elijah shows up and Moses shows up and and the disciples want to build a booth for each one plus Jesus and a cloud overtakes the mountain and the voice says this is my son and when the cloud lifts the Bible tells us they saw Jesus only I like that phrase don't you Jesus only it was a few Months, maybe even a year after that, I remember an evening service in that same church and after a moving message where my heart was drawn to the Savior in such a powerful way, they concluded the service by singing what became that night one of my favorite hymns, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. My heart was moved. Jesus only. And then it was here at South. <clears throat> I was doing a funeral for a member of the congregation. And I remember going to the funeral home and visiting with a family. And people were there. And they had in the background a song playing that has now become one of my favorite songs. Fernando Ortega's Give Me Jesus. We're going to hear that next week as the theme song of this new series. When I come to die, and when I come to die, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. You see, it's easy for us to get so tied up in other things, even good things. And we talk about propositions and theology and creeds, and well, we should. And we define truth and we combat error and we need to do all of those things. But we often forget that it is all about a person named Jesus. And he needs to be the love of our life. And we need to walk with him every day. And so that's why we're going to start a new sermon series based primarily on the book of Mark. Entitled, Simply Jesus. Because I want us to get our eyes on Christ. If they're off Christ, to get them back on Christ. I want us to walk with him more, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set at the right hand of the Father. I want us to walk through the Gospel of Mark primarily and learn more about this wonderful Savior so that we might walk with him daily. And so we're going to study the Gospel of Mark. By the way, the Gospel of Mark, one of the oldest Gospels, uh, probably the oldest Gospel actually, 
I think it was written somewhere between 55 to 65 A.D. Written during a time of tremendous persecution as Nero began to kill more and more believers. In fact, it became popular for him to kill Christians. And at that time, it was hard to live for Christ. And here we have a gospel written about the life of Jesus Christ. The first time, in a systematic way, the life of Christ has been penned for us so that we might read and know him. And then the other gospels followed. It, it appears that both Matthew and Luke borrowed a lot from Mark. In fact, most of his gospel has been reproduced in theirs. And as the word of God comes to us in the gospel of Mark, we find something pretty amazing. There's a portrait of Christ somewhat different than the other gospels. It's the portrait of Christ as a servant. Matthew starts out with a genealogy because his purpose in his gospel is to prove that Christ is the rightful king to David's throne. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Christ is the king. Luke writes to emphasize the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's the son of man. And so it's not surprising that he starts out with the birth narrative of Jesus and tells us about how he came into this world and who he is. John begins his gospel with eternity. The word was with God and the word was God. And this is the word that was made flesh and what he wants to prove in his gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. So Matthew emphasizes royalty and Luke emphasizes humanity and John emphasizes deity and he writes so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But Mark is a little different. He emphasizes activity. I mean, his gospel is fast-paced. It's quickly moving. The word immediately is used 41 times. When in all the other Gospels put together, I think it's used 10 or 11 times. Talk about fast pace. No moss growing under the feet of Jesus. It's a book of activity. There aren't many long discourses, only two. But there are more miracles mentioned in the, in the Gospel of Mark than all the other Gospels. Because it's a Gospel of movement and activity. And Mark wants to prove that Jesus is... God the Son, the servant, the one who has come to accomplish our redemption. I think the key verse is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's a verse we have up on the screen for you. Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Mark 10 and verse 45. Tradition tells us that Mark is the author of this gospel, and we can go all the way back to some of the early church writers. Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis in about 140 A.D., wrote these words. This is the first mention that Mark is the author of this gospel. It says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by our Lord, however, not in order. It's important to understand that. He takes a lot of activity and puts it together in a short space, but it's not necessarily in order. 
And Arrhenius of Lyons also stated a few years after that that after the death of Paul and Peter, Mark, the disciple of Peter, transmitted to us in writing the things that were preached by Peter. So what you have in the Gospel of Mark is actually the Gospel according to Peter. These are the sermons that Peter preached. And by the way, it's interesting. If you go to Acts 10, don't, you don't need to do that now, but Acts chapter 10, where Peter is called upon to take the gospel into the Gentile world, he's at the house of Cornelius and sharing what the gospel is with this centurion, this Roman soldier. And when he begins to talk about the gospel, he follows the same pattern that we find here in Mark's gospel. He starts out with the life of John the Baptist and the anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit and then begins the ministry of Jesus in the Galilee, overlooking some ministry prior to that, and then talks about his journey to Jerusalem and the ministry in the city of Jerusalem, that final Passion Week that ends with the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's amazing how he follows Peter's order of the gospel or his presentation of the gospel as we find it in Acts 10. And it doesn't this sound like Peter in the gospel according to Mark where you're just moving from one thing to another without delay immediately? I mean, Peter was impetuous and he was doing one thing before he even thought about it. And so it fits. And we also have in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writing and saying that John Mark, that was his full name, John Mark is my son in the faith. So he's led to Christ. Mark is so impressed by the ministry of Peter and writes the gospel. Well, let's quickly go and, and do a bit of a, a brief survey of something of an introduction to the gospel, but we're going to start out with the identification of Jesus in the first 13 verses. Several people come to the fore, come to the front to identify who's the, who this Jesus is. And first of all, it's Mark himself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's testimony. The word gospel means good news. It's a message that brings life with it. And it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who in Mark's estimation is clearly the Son of God. Now, in any Jewish mind, the title Son of God is equal with God himself. You can study that in John chapter 5. Whenever Jesus said, I'm the Son of God, they wanted to stone him because he made himself equal with God. And that's exactly what Mark is saying. Mark is the one who grew up in a good home. His mother Mary had a sizable home in Jerusalem, and we're told that the church used to meet in it, Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 13, John Mark became one of the first missionaries sent out by the church to take the gospel. He had some problems, though, and he, was, he actually went AWOL. He left the missionary team. But it's so neat to see that he recovered and became a useful disciple both to Paul and to Peter and to the church of Jesus Christ. He became profitable and he's mentioned three times in the later writings of Paul as a servant and a fellow laborer. 
And Mark is going to be the one who is going to go ahead and set up things for the coming Messiah. Uh, excuse me, uh, John Mark is going to tell us as he starts his gospel about John the Baptist, who is going to be the one who is going to set the scene. So Mark tells us from the get-go what he wants to accomplish, the thesis of his gospel, what he hopes to prove, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So Mark points to Jesus. Also, the identification of Christ is given to us by the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then two Old Testament scriptures are quoted. Malachi chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 40. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's Malachi. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So the Old Testament, by way of prediction, is telling us that one is coming who is called Messiah. And it's amazing when you study the New Testament to see the preaching in the book of Acts and how it points to Christ. And it uses the Old Testament scriptures. The apostles use the Old Testament and say, this is Jesus and this is Jesus. Actually, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. That's one of the most exciting things you can learn about the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24 Jesus himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to the men or to the people on the road to Emmaus, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's the Old Testament. Jesus said to them, also Luke 24, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. John chapter 5, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. Or how about this? In John chapter 8, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was writing about Jesus. Or one final Quote from John chapter 12, Isaiah said, they'll hear, but they won't hear. They'll see, but they won't see. And all of this was written to fulfill what was said in the scriptures. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. I tell you, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And if you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, you miss it. So then we go to the next witness. John the Baptist, that's verse 4. So John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized him in the Jordan River. So John is doing something now that is novel, wholly unique, never done before calling Jews to be baptized. Gentiles were baptized into Judaism, but Jews were never baptized. They had ceremonial washings, but never being baptized to confess their sins. This is something totally new. And John the Baptist is doing it, notice, for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. So when people came out and went under the water, they were acknowledging that they were sinners, and it was symbolic of their sins being washed away. John became wildly popular 
It says all the people came out to him. The whole countryside, all the people of Jerusalem. That's hyperbole. Because we know that some didn't go out there. Some of the Pharisees didn't. And some of the sick who couldn't move didn't. But it means just about everyone. He was so popular. And verse 6 tells us that John looked a little unique. He wore clothing made from camel's hair. And there's a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. You say, why even add that in the text? Because that's an almost identical description to Elijah. Read 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. He was dressed the same way. And John's coming in the spirit of Elijah, so he wants to look like him. And he wants to live where he did, out in the desert. And he preaches like he preached. And so, John the Baptist points to Jesus. Notice he says in verse 7, this was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. By the, word, by the way, the word baptized could be translated drenched. I like that. He'll drench you with water. I drench you with water. He will drench you with the Holy Spirit. And that's a good description of how Christians ought to live, drenched with the Holy Spirit. John points to Jesus, and he's the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, then we come to verse 9, and we see that the Father is also pointing to the Son. It was at that time that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here Jesus is introduced. No birth narrative. No discussion about him being the eternal son of God. We just get right into the story. Jesus comes from his hometown in Nazareth and is baptized by John. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. By the way, we're told in the early verses that John was a voice crying in the wilderness, but this is the voice. When you listen to voices, make sure that they're proclaiming the message of the voice. A voice comes from heaven this is my beloved son. There's identification. The father is speaking. This is my son. I am pleased with him. And you should be too. Now did you notice the triunity there of the Godhead? The son being baptized, the spirit coming down, and the father speaking. And so the father and the spirit say, yes, this is the one. Notice what Mark is doing here. He's just piling up like a lawyer all of these testimonies to prove his case, but he doesn't even end there. He takes, some, uh, takes someone who is really not on the side of Jesus. For verse 12 says, At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and Jesus was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. By the way, the 40 days probably is a connection to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, just like John the Baptist is connected with the prophet Elijah. And what is happening here is that Israel needs to return to its roots and repent. She needs to go back in the wilderness and do it all over again the right way. 
But Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And notice Mark doesn't tell you anything about it. You have to go to Matthew chapter 4 and Luke's gospel to, to fill in the details. But the devil must have recognized who Jesus was to put all of this effort and focus on him, to try to destroy him at the very beginning. But the Bible says the angels attended to him. And so while Satan tried to destroy him, the angels supported him, and both testified that this is the one. Isn't that great? Testimony after testimony after testimony. Do you want some more? And we put up our hands and say, no, okay, that's enough, I believe. I hope you do. It's all about Jesus. So then Mark goes on in verse 14, and he begins to talk about the proclamation. After he has identified who Jesus is, now he talks about the proclamation of the Son. After John was put in prison, put in prison by Herod, <clears throat> so that it was not safe to preach in the southern part of the kingdom, southern part in Judea, in the region beyond the Jordan, the Bible tells us Jesus went into Galilee. Uh, Jesus had some ministry before he went into the Galilee, but Mark skips that and goes right to his ministry in the Galilee. Jesus went back to his home territory, the Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he proclaimed the good news. Here's the phrase mentioned from verse 1. It's the good news of God. It's the good news about the kingdom of God. And it's the good news that people need to believe to become the children of God. The message is all about the good news. Now, the timing is right. Because the scripture tells us here, the time has come. First words of Jesus recorded by Mark. The time has come. What time? The time predicted by the prophets. Jesus was born in the fullness of time. And now it's the perfect time for Christ to come. Everything has been completed. The forerunner, John the Baptist, has prepared the way. The Old Testament scriptures are now going to be fulfilled in the fullness of time, the perfect time, the time has come. I love the timing in the scripture. Jesus is going to say throughout his lifetime, my hour's not yet come. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. And then when he comes to the cross, he says, it's here. He was in complete control. And by the way, the time is right for you to believe on Jesus and make him your all. Today is the accepted day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why are you here today? That's God's grace and this is God's timing to transform your life and to change you. The message of the gospel is the gospel of God because it comes from him. And when you believe it, it brings you to him. It's called the gospel of grace, and there's only one. It's the gospel of God. And then notice this opportunity. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What an opportunity. Jesus is there. Now, I'm sure the Jews thought of a political revolution the kingdom 
<laughs> and we're going to overthrow Rome. And we learned this when we study the Gospels, that that's really what they were looking for. But Jesus meant, no, power has come. God has come. I am here. The reign of God in the souls of those who believe. And you're going to see the kingdom of God in power when people who are sick are healed and the demon-possessed freed and rights made wrong and the gospel preached to the poor, you're going to see and feel a demonstration of the kingdom of God. It's here. What an opportunity. And then his message, repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from your sin. It means to turn away from your God's it means to stop worshiping like you're worshiping. It mean, means to renounce what you love that is anti-God. To change your attitude and to change your course. And to believe means to trust. Not only believe intellectually, but trust with your heart. To cast yourself upon someone. Repent and believe is still the gospel message. The good news is that Jesus has come to save you and you need to turn from all your other trusts and trust Christ. Have you done that? It's good news. It's good news because you're a sinner and without Christ you die. You go to eternal punishment. It's good news because when you believe in Christ, your life is full. You began to live it like the Creator intended. The image of God is replaced once again in your life. There's joy and abundance and freedom and fullness. It's good news. Believe in Christ. You do that by turning from your sin and trusting Him. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, this is still the message, I've declared both to the Jews and to the Greeks that they should turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the message. So we've got the identification of Jesus and we've got the proclamation of Jesus. Everything is set. We know what he wants to do. We know who he is. And now Mark goes right to an amazing invitation that begins in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into a lake because they were fishermen. That was their occupation. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Now I think it's important to note that these guys had already met Jesus. If you study John's gospel in chapter 1, they had probably been baptized by John themselves, and that's where they were introduced to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, and that's where they invited their brothers and their family to come and see this one who indeed is Messiah. So they had some introduction to Jesus. So this is a call probably to deeper discipleship. They were most likely believers, but now Jesus is going to take them to a new level. And when you study the scriptures, that's often the voice you hear. The Spirit of God speaking to you, the believer, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. 
And so you'll notice as you read verse 16 down through verse 20 that the word follow is mentioned three different times. But what you may not know is that behind those three English words are three different Greek words with a slightly different meaning. For instance, in verse 17, come is a command, and the word follow means get behind me. So it means come and follow from behind or follow behind me. It's the idea of don't walk ahead of me, don't pursue a different path. I want you to be on my path, but I want you to walk in my path following me. And this is where the ancient Jewish writers used to talk about discipleship like this. A disciple is someone who walks in the dust of the rabbi and drinks in his teaching to quench their thirsty soul. A disciple is someone who follows behind Jesus, that is, following in his path and following his teaching. In verse 18, at once they left their nets and they followed him. Here the word follow means to attach yourself to someone. It was a word that was used in the first century about political parties. When you joined a party, you attached yourself to that group. It's the same concept when believers become identified with a local church. They began to follow that church. They attached themselves to that particular body of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the disciples did. They became united, attached to Jesus, following in his path behind him, attached to him personally. His life became their life. By the way, what did they leave behind? Well, in a sense, everything. They left their occupations. They left their nets. They were fishermen. And they threw their nets aside and went to embark on a new journey. And then we read in verse 19, Jesus went a little further along the lake. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired people, and they followed Jesus. Apparently, Zebedee was fairly well off. He had some hired men, so when the boys left the fishing business, it didn't leave him in a lurch. But they did the same thing that uh, the others did. They left everything. Where some left their occupations, these guys left their family to follow Jesus. It's exactly what Rachel is doing. She's on her way to West Africa, and it's not an easy thing for her or for family and friends. But when Jesus calls, you go. They didn't just add Jesus to their already busy life. He became central, and they followed him. The word follow in verse 20 means to depart and go off in a new direction. So they walked behind him, attached to him, departing from other things, and venturing off in a new direction. And what was that new direction? They were becoming fishers of men. If these guys were farmers, I'm sure Jesus would have changed the metaphor. Follow me and you'll plant the good seed that reaps a harvest for eternal life. But they were fishermen. So he said, you know what? 
I want you to do something far more significant than catching fish. I want you to catch souls. This wasn't a new concept. Philosophers used this same type of terminology. And even in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, we have a hint at this. But it was a new direction because now Jesus was the one calling the shots. And when you think about it, the qualities that make a good fisherman also make a good winner of souls. Someone who is tenacious, someone who can work with others, has patience and energy, stamina. Now, fishermen, they, they don't have the luxury to give up and quit just whenever they want to. They have to keep working even though the results don't come in. And that's exactly what Peter and James and John and Andrew did. Peter Followed the Lord, taking the gospel all the way to Rome, where tradition tells us he was killed. James killed by Herod, one of the first martyrs. Andrew is said to have taken the gospel all the way to the borders of Russia. And John, the apostle John, lived, outlived all the other disciples and apostles. He became the bishop of Ephesus and took care of the mother of Jesus, Mary, who probably moved to Ephesus under his care. But they followed Jesus. And these ignorant fishermen changed the world. I think it was Voltaire who said what ignorant fishermen began, one intelligent, intelligent Frenchman will destroy. A humble statement, isn't it? Did you know that after Voltaire died, they used his printing press to print Bibles? God has a sense of humor. But it's all about Jesus, and it's all about us trusting him, turning from our sin, trusting him, and then following him. There it is. Turn, trust, follow. Follow behind him, attached to him, even departing from other things so that he might be your all. And I don't think we follow very well, but it's vitally important that we do. Two quick stories. There was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. He has his problems, but he was an amazing theologian in his depth of understanding and insight and in his writings. So deep they confuse most people. He was lecturing in 1962, and as he was lecturing, a student stood up in a Q&A time and said, Dr. Barth, will you tell us in one sentence, summarize in one sentence, your theology and your writings? <laughs> the audience gasped in one sentence, all of this deep writing and thinking. And without skipping a beat, Barth said, Yes, I will. And it comes from something my mother taught me as I sat upon her knee from a little song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What a great summary. It's all about Jesus. That's a good illustration of someone who sought to follow the Savior. Here's an unfortunate one. If you were involved with Youth for Christ in the 1950s, there would have been two names that dominated the scene as the most upcoming 
powerful preachers. One name you know well, Billy Graham. The other name you probably don't know very well, Charles Templeton. It was those in the Youth for Christ that said Templeton was a better preacher than Graham. He had more poise and more power, and he seemed to be the obvious leader. But somewhere in the late 60s, he turned on Christ and gave it all up. He was a Canadian, went back to his home country, and there got involved in a Canadian newspaper and then became a prominent uh, newscaster on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Network, and even made a run for prime minister. I mean, this guy had charisma, and he was intellectual, and he was persuasive, and he was articulate. Have you ever heard the name Lee Strobel? The guy who's written all those books, Case for Christ, Case for Easter. Well, he heard about Templeton and heard his story and decided he was going to go interview him. And so he flew to Toronto, Canada and sat down with, at that time, the 83-year-old Charles Templeton and said, tell me about what you think about Christianity. And Templeton went off in almost a rage. He'd been an agnostic for all these years and he wasn't going to change. He cited the fact that there's so much suffering in the world and how can there be so much suffering if there's a compassionate God? And he talked about the inconsistencies with Christianity and you know, he just went on and Lee let him go. And then near the end of the interview, Lee Strobel looked at Charles Templeton and said, <clears throat> what about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? His shoulders kind of sighed and he said, Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. Tears filled in his eyes, and he began to sob. And he said, I miss Jesus. I miss Jesus. Don't live your life and miss Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, our sermon today is much like the Gospel of Mark. It's been in a hurry and rapid pace. But I pray that you will give an impression upon our souls that makes it abundantly clear that you, Lord Jesus, are the Son of God. The witnesses are clear. That you proclaim the Gospel of God. The opportunity is today repent and believe. And that you offer the invitation that Jesus gave, follow me. Life will not be easy, but follow me, it will be abundant. Follow me, it will be fulfilling. Follow me, and I'll involve you in the greatest task the world has ever known, fishing for men. Follow me, and when your time is done, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May we answer the call. In your name we pray. Amen.